This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Speech! Speech! It's what a political convention is filled with, and there were a lot of speeches this week at the Republican National Convention. Many members of the Trump family spoke. Was there a member of the Trump family that did not speak? I don't think so. I think everybody got an opportunity to say their piece, which, you know what, is par for the course at most conventions. But there were a lot of people who came out and talked. So let's kind of recap what happened. Dr. Rob Goodman is a professor of political science at Ryerson University. Dr. Goodman, thanks so much for being here. How are things? Yeah, thanks, thanks so much for having me on. Now, you know, they're as good as can be expected in the middle of a pandemic and watching my home country spiral into authoritarianism. But, you know, I'll take it. It's a nice day out. <laughs> well, let's look down south. Maybe we can get some thoughts on our own country in a minute. But, uh, but yeah, let's, uh, let's look down south at the United States and how things are kind of shaping up as we get a whole lot closer to the start of November when... Votes are going to be cast. When you look at the Republican National Convention as a whole, because you could break it up into days, people did, they did recaps of it, this had a lot of show to it. What struck you from what you saw? Well, let's talk about what what I see as the main theme of the show as someone who studies politics. Um, It's the use of the resources of the presidency of the state in order to promote the Trump family the Republican Party, and and the Trump campaign. So we saw that most vividly last night in which uh, President Trump, for the first time in our history, turned the White House into the stage for a political convention. So you see it uh, draped in uh, red MAGA hats, um, in uh, Trump-Pence 2020 banners and Make America Great Again signs. Uh, This has never been done. I want to talk a little bit about why that's a problem. Uh, It's not just a problem because it's bad optics. It's a problem because... It's a very clear statement that, uh, from Trump's perspective and from the Republicans' party's perspective, they are the state. They believe that it's entirely fair and legitimate to use the resources of the American government to keep them in office, to promote their campaign, to promote their political interests. And that's scary stuff. I and mean, it's scary stuff because we've seen what happens when a political party thinks like that during the pandemic. Um, you know, we've seen Trump say very explicitly, I want to slow testing down because bad numbers make me look bad. And as a result, it takes up to two weeks in America to get a COVID test back. Um, that's the same mindset that we just saw uh, in as clear as day uh, at last night's Trump speech. And it wasn't just the speech last night. It was Trump using things like the presidential power part, uh, pardon of power, a naturalization ceremony for immigrants, all these things as part of political advertising, which, again, has never been done before. Uh, and the reason it's scary is because it's sending a very clear signal that the Republican Party doesn't just want to be a political party, it wants to be a party state. And that's why I use the word authoritarianism, and I don't throw that around lightly. That's a really serious charge. Um, but I could not imagine a neutral observer watching what happened over the last four days and thinking that's not what we're in trouble of. And in looking at this, if you were, let's say, a, maybe even, you know, someone who didn't know who they were voting for, but you thought, you know what, I'll just watch this, and you didn't maybe pay attention to news in any other way, I'm going to watch the Republican National Convention, and if I like what I see, I'll vote for Trump, and if I don't like what I see, I'll vote for the other guy. What do you think this does if people are not 
soaking in a little bit more information than what they are being given by Donald Trump and everybody surrounding him. Well, I think people are uh, smart enough to pick up on the disconnect between the world as it's presented at that convention and the world as they see it outside their window. Um, America is among the worst, if not the worst, hit countries uh, by the coronavirus pandemic. You know, here in Ontario, we've got about 100 cases a day. Uh, in America, it's orders of magnitude higher than that. Uh, a thousand people, more than a thousand people, died every day of that convention. That's more than 9-11. Um, and at the Trump convention, you saw the um, coronavirus pandemic being described as something in the past tense, as something that is done with, that is no longer happening. Uh, you saw America described alternately as something that President Trump has made great again. Uh, but also you heard images of um, all sorts of uh, violence and disorder and the abolition of the suburbs that's, come to your na- that's going to come to your neighborhood if the Democrats win, which is odd because these things are happening when Trump's in power. But, but the point is, is that I think if I'm uh, um, an undecided voter, and there aren't very many, but if I'm an undecided voter, um, I'd want someone to speak to my concerns. I want someone to explain why my kid can't go to school. I'd want someone to explain why I have to wear a mask everywhere all of a sudden. I'd want someone to explain why I'm going on five or six months of trying to scrap together homeschooling and staying at home, and I can't see my kids' grandparents, uh, and when this is going to end, and not see any kind of recognition this is going on in the world outside the White House. Instead, you see people sitting crammed next to each other uh, without wearing masks at what looks like it's going to be a super spreader event. So... I, you know, undecided voters come at all stripes, but I think what they want is someone to speak to their perception of what has gone so wrong in the world outside the convention. I just don't think they saw that. We're talking with Dr. Rob Goodman, professor of political science at Ryerson. Yesterday I had someone bring up uh, a line that's been used, and that is that if you go back to 2016, you had X amount of voters who supported Donald Trump and the Republicans. And the idea is, where would anybody new come from? In other words, we may have seen some people change their minds, defect from what they did and decide, no, I'm not voting Republican this time around. Is there a chance that there are new voters being brought in? Is there a chance that we we do see Donald Trump win again? Well, for the most part, I don't think so. And the reason is that you could look at the Republicans' own strategy. They're, they're not dumb people. They're smart people. And their strategy is going all in on voter suppression. And, and I'll say two things. One, no one, not even Republican consultants who are being paid by Trump, expect that he's going to win the popular vote. Uh, it's pretty much anticipated that he's going to be millions down, just like he was in 2016. He can still win the Electoral College. And I think that's, as Americans, that's our cross to bear, that we have this anti-majoritarian system that is built to keep the winner of the popular vote out of office quite often. It's already done that twice in my lifetime, and it might do that again. But even if that doesn't happen, um, we just see about how explicitly uh, Trump and people like the Postmaster General want to interfere with voting by mail, want to interfere with absentee voting, um, expect that there are probably going to be long lines at polling places, especially in in, uh, majority people of color neighborhoods. Uh, this is the plan for them, and they've been very upfront about it. Uh, the plan is not let's win X number of persuadables, although I'm sure they'd like to win a few people over. The plan is let's make it as hard as possible for our enemies, and I use that word really deliberately, let's make it as hard as possible for our enemies to vote because that's how they see people who live in urban centers. 
that's how they see people who live in blue states. They see them as enemies, and they don't want them to have a say. Um, that's why this election is so serious. Dr. Goodman, being an American, when you look, I mean, your country stands for home of the free. Your country stands for everyone has rights, and they can carry out those rights. When you see that that's a strategy, and when you see that it could actually be carried out, how do you feel? Uh, it hurts. It hurts every day. I watch it on the news way more than I should every day, but uh, I do. Um, you know, I'm here for a reason. I, I, I love it here. I'm, I'm proud to be a permanent resident here. I'm proud that my family's here. Uh, Canada's got its own problems. It's got its own um, issues um, with, uh, with, with populism and anti-majoritarian thinking, but it's not nearly as bad as it is where I come from, and it hurts. Um, so what I want of, of my adopted country, my new country, is whatever happens in this election to be really explicit about these values because there might come a day and it might come sooner than we think that Canada is going to have to speak up for these things a lot more loudly. Uh, let me just give one example. Um, a couple of weeks ago, a federal court uh, struck down the safe third country agreement between Canada and the U.S., essentially saying that if uh, refugees make it to the United States, they're entitled to uh, go further on to Canada without being sent back to the U.S. And they did that in light of some of the horrendous treatment of refugees that's come to light as a result of deliberate uh, Trump and Stephen Miller policies down there in the U.S. Uh, the Liberal government doesn't like that ruling. It says it's going to appeal. I think that's a mistake, and I don't think they should be appealing. I, I think Canada, even though it's so economically bound up with the U.S., even though its security interests are bound up in the U.S., has to be a little more willing to poke the bear, uh, as we say, in the coming years, especially if we see the U.S. Uh, turn its back on what used to be some pretty strongly shared democratic values. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that, and thank you for sharing your thoughts on this. We'll see what plays out. We're getting very, very close to November the 3rd, and uh, it'll be an interesting campaign the rest of the way. And the rhetoric is, is something that frustrates a lot of people, and uh, I don't know that we're going to see rhetoric change. Do you, do you think that we're going to see anything but a pure campaign? I mean, is there going to be an, an, an ignorance of what is going on with the pandemic from the Republican side, that, that it is actually over, like you, like you said they pointed at? I think they're going to keep talking about it in the past tense. I think Trump has been um, taking some really uh, frightening steps. And this goes back to my idea of using uh, the power of the state to help politics, has done some things pretty explicitly to interfere with testing, to interfere with CDC guidelines. Um, I hope uh, it, it doesn't carry over into interference with uh, the vaccine development process because that's such a big deal. But, you know, a lot of political observers are pointing out um, People expect that there's going to be some big, shiny vaccine announcement sometime this fall, uh, time to help out the president's re-election. I hope it's legitimate. I hope the vaccine is safe and tested and ready to go. That would be fantastic. But uh, I'm going to watch him take it first. And uh, if he does, then I'll, uh, I I'd consider that uh, for my friends and family who live in America and for myself if I could ever get it. Um, but I think, I, I, I think that we have seen very clearly that Trump and the Republican Party don't see a distinction between campaigning for office and doing politics and using the powers of the government and the state. Most people, even though these lines get blurred a lot, have recognized that these are completely different things because you have to be able to trust your government about things like public health, even if you don't like the party of the guys in office. You know, liberals, conservatives, NDP people, 
need to be able to trust Doug Ford when he talks about, uh, say, wearing masks and pandemic safety and health guidelines. And that's a benefit of Canada being a little less polarized in the U.S. But we're seeing you know, the last wisps of that being threatened by the way this campaign has been run. And I hope that whatever happens as a result of the election, um, there will be um, some kind of move back towards the idea that public health, that vaccine development, that CDC guidelines are and have to be utterly nonpartisan. Uh, and, 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 but once you've, once you've chipped away at that, once you've shown that you can play partisan politics, even with that, that's really hard to win back that trust. That, that's one of the things that scares me the most. Wow. Dr. Goodman, thank you so much for your thoughts today. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Rob Goodman, professor of political science at Ryerson and an American citizen. So his thoughts, looking at his country. Politics is a game, and you always keep those things. Sometimes it's a skeleton in the closet of your opponent. Sometimes it's something that can, you hope, put you over the top. That's very interesting to hear Dr. Goodman say, yeah, what if they trotted out a vaccine? What would that do? How much sway would that be? But far more frightening is what you would see in making it difficult to vote. And that's why you see the NBA big into opening up venues in their cities. Because people know that this is the game that the Republicans are playing, don't they? And every election is a game. I can remember watching somebody hand out lollipops at Western University, when it was the University of Western Ontario, and they were handing out lollipops with their name and vote for them for a position on Western Student Council. They spent about $100 on lollipops. That buys a lot of lollipops. You know what else it did? It bought a lot of votes. That person won. They got in. Didn't say a word about what they were going to do. Didn't say a word about anything else. Gave out lollipops. You can expect a lollipop coming from the Republican side. You may expect one coming from the Democrat side, too. Those things are still to play out. Except this time around, I'm afraid to see what it was or what it is that would come from. We have had a statement come out, joint statement, from the NBA and the NBA Players Association. And we'll tell you what that says in just a moment. We have had an interesting couple of days in the sports world. And remember... Discussions are good. Conversations are good. And things have to be done to get those going or to keep them going. And we'll discuss that in just a little bit as well. And also remember, this is not league stuff. Everybody keeps saying NBA, NHL. And we mentioned it yesterday. Greg Brady was one of the first people to point this out. This is players. The players are doing this. Nazem Kadri tweeted that last night. The players. This is their doing. And this is what they're feeling passionate about and feeling is necessary. So the leagues don't need the credit right now, but we'll talk about what the NBA and NBA Players Association statement says in about 10 minutes' time. If we go back 22 hours ago, what were we noticing? We were noticing pictures all over social media, and those pictures may have prompted you to have a look out the window. 
because there were some weird-looking War of the Worlds-type clouds that were rolling in. If you said Will Smith and Independence Day, you looked out the window in some spots, I think along Dundas Street, there was this little little circle of cloud underneath. You could say, wow, is, is that headed to the White House? Is that a cloud, or is that something different? In the end, it was a big storm. And it was a storm that had a tornado warning with it, which has prompted us to ask some questions like, what has this meant and why do we keep getting so many tornado warnings this summer? And we have these little tornadoes that touch down. David Sills is the executive director of the Northern Tornadoes Project and joins us now on London Live. David, how are you? Good, how are you? Not too bad. I... Shut some windows yesterday, even though it was nice to have some of the cooler air blowing blowing in. You had to shut the windows because at times uh, the rain was doing what Forrest Gump once described. It was coming in from the side. What did we see from yesterday's storm that we can tangibly write down as data right now? <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, those that line of storms really developed quickly, and there was a big... Uh, outflow boundary that came out to the south of it, which means the uh, the rain-cooled air from the storm itself kind of spread out and started moving more quickly than the storm itself to the south and created all those uh, wicked-looking clouds. Um, we call that, in the in the storm chaser jargon, you're in the whale's mouth. It looks like uh, when you get behind that, that, that gust front, it looks like it's all coming over top of you and all bubbling like you're inside of a, a whale. So that's, that's the chaser jargon. But... Um, Behind that gust front is a lot of wind, and we did see quite a few reports of, of damage and, and that kind of thing all the way from uh, Mount Carmel in the northwest to Turkey Point in the southeast. So uh, right now we're, we've got a team out from the Northern Tornadoes Project that's uh, investigating uh, some of the damage. Um, there was, as you said, one tornado reported in the vicinity of St. Thomas Airport, and we verified that it's at least a funnel cloud that developed there. And the survey survey team is out there now looking for evidence that it might have been a tornado. So how do we distinguish between, hey, that's a funnel cloud? Because I don't know, for all of us, if you see a funnel cloud and things swirling around, immediately you're going to say, tornado! <laughs> how do you distinguish between funnel cloud and what you would actually classify as a tornado? Right. Well, I mean, anytime you see a funnel cloud, that's that's the reaction to have because it means it's possible that there is a tornado occurring. Uh, but the trick is, is that sometimes you get a funnel cloud aloft and the rotation aloft, but it doesn't really translate to the surface. Uh, there may be a bit of wind, but it's just not damaging winds that uh, kind of define what a tornado is. So we tend to call those funnel clouds aloft. And so far, like I said, that's what we've got with the St. Thomas Airport event. Uh, and we're looking for evidence that it actually had uh, contact at the ground and, and caused some damage. So is that the key? A tornado can be a funnel cloud if it's hovering in the air or moving along in a, in a cloud form, but when it touches the ground, that's tornado time? Well, with, with a tornado, it, you basically need to have damaging winds or at least winds that could cause damage if, if they hit anything that could be damaged. Um, so, I mean, with a tornado, you can have a funnel cloud that comes down uh, all the way to the ground or a funnel cloud that comes partway to the ground, um, that's why you need to, when you see a funnel cloud, you need to be aware that it could be a tornado. Uh, but sometimes these funnel clouds just hang there and there really isn't any rotation down at the surface. And that's, that's when the, that distinction comes in. Was, was there contact and damage at the ground or was it just, just a, an event that was aloft? 
David Seals joining us, Executive Director of the Northern Tornadoes Project. And we'll talk about the project itself in just a moment. But, David, in terms of chasing after these storms, how far away do you want to make sure you take them? We're not, you know, you should know what you're doing before you become a storm chaser. Let's say that. So this is not something you just kind of pick up on a Saturday and say, hey, kids, let's see if we can go out and find some tornadoes. Don't do that. But in terms of being able to be near a tornado but not be at risk of being in the tornado, how do you set that rule book? Right. Well, yeah, there are a number of tornadoes. Actually, yesterday, I think there was at least six, seven, eight, uh, chasers that were on all those storms yesterday. So that's that's why we're getting quite a bit of information back on what happened. And all of these people have spent a lot of time uh, studying up on the weather. Not all of them are meteorologists, but um, there's so much information online about meteorology that a lot of people have pretty much educated themselves and, and know how far away to stay. Uh, and you do have to respect things like tornadoes and downbursts and try to try to keep out of their way because obviously they can cause a lot of damage. And, uh, and you know, the best chasers uh, know that. There are uh, chasers, and sometimes you see this stuff on, on social media that get far too close, sometimes right in the tornado, and uh, somehow make it out the other side and then live to tell about it. But uh, certainly that's not something anybody encourages. And, uh, you know, you can, you can definitely get uh, good, good photos or good, uh, you know, have a, that tornado watching experience from a distance. And, uh, you know, that's what zoom lenses are for. So, you know, keep, keep that distance and, and respect, uh, respect the wind. Are we seeing more storms creating more of these type events, more potential tornadoes or actual tornadoes that are being classified maybe this year? It, it just it seems like it's happening a lot, but who knows? I, I hardly remember what I had for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this year has been a bit busier in southwestern Ontario. Um, we've got... Uh, We've got 23 tornadoes that have so far been confirmed in southern Ontario. And, you know, our long-term average is something around a dozen. So we are over that averages, average, but, you know, you have to also consider that we've got our project, the Northern Tornadoes Project, uh, that's, that's got a whole bunch of people out there looking for these things. So we're finding more. Um, and then just in general, the public is far more interested and far more engaged in trying to get photos and that kind of stuff. Uh, so we're, we're just getting a lot more reports than we used to. Uh, but, you know, there is really a lot of year-to-year variability in, um, in southwestern Ontario. It's been pretty quiet the last few years, and this year, you know, we're, we're getting quite a few weak events. Uh, but the last couple of years, the events have been more over in eastern Ontario and Quebec. Sometimes they're over in uh, Alberta or Saskatchewan. Manitoba's had some big tornadoes. So, you know, it just depends year to year where the storms happen and uh, if, if the ingredients come together to, to uh, develop a tornado. Absolutely. Well, we're talking with David Sills, Executive Director of the Northern Tornadoes Project. David, tell us just a little bit about the project and, and what it is all about before we go. Sure. The, part, the project is a partnership between University of Western Ontario and Impact WX, which is a social uh, impact fund out of Toronto. And the idea is to... Uh, do what we can to detect every tornado across Canada. And it's a very ambitious initiative. And we've got a, a staff at Western and also in Winnipeg at the University of Manitoba uh, that goes out and does these damage surveys and, and pours over the data. And uh, it's, a, it's a combination of meteorologists and wind engineers. And that's kind of unique where we have both, both sides of that coin uh, participating in the same project. Usually they're in different worlds. So uh, we're able to, you know, share expertise that way and really get to the bottom of 
you know, these tornado events and documenting them properly and also making them available to, to the public. Uh, so, I mean, we have a website, uwo.ca slash NTP, and people can go there. All the data that we collect are there, and uh, there's a nice dashboard that shows you where all the latest tornadoes have occurred and go to, even goes back a few years at this point. So uh, all that data is publicly available, and, and that's our intention is uh, collect all this really high-quality data with tornadoes across the country and make it available to the public. Well, congratulations on what you have done so far. Thank you for doing it because we'll learn a lot more about how all of this works and how they develop in our area. And, David, keep safe in the pandemic and also if uh, you're anywhere close to any of those windstorms. Will do. Okay, you too. Take care. That's David Sills, Executive Director of the Northern Tornadoes Project. So looks like at the St. Thomas Airport, and we, we could have seen a tornado, and... We had some other damage that was done. We had power outages in London as well. Just make sure you keep yourself safe in all of that because the storms, they tend to pick up quickly. Those those kind of came on fast, didn't they? This escalated. Our city and truly our world have lost a great human being, somebody who made a difference in so many different ways. Bill Boland passed away on Wednesday. And Bill was instrumental in so many things. It's, it's, it's quite something when you can take someone's life and read it in reverse. You know how biographies usually start at the beginning and then, then they'll go through everything that someone accomplished? If you do that with Bill Boland, you can kind of go in reverse and you still see all of these things. And, and things just seem to get the, not even bigger and bigger, but they stay the same size. The things that he accomplished, the things that he did, the passion with which he lived life were incredible. And joining us right now is someone who knew Bill very, very well, and we thank him for taking some time to pay tribute to the life of Bill Boland. Please welcome to London Live, Jim Virtue. Jim, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome, Mike. It's nice to join you. We have seen Bill honored as Sports Person of the Year. We have seen him honored with Governor General Awards. The accomplishments include the 2013 World Figure Skating Championships. But you're somebody who knew Bill away from awards and accolades. What can you tell us about who Bill was when we weren't hanging medals around his neck and when he wasn't bringing massive events to the city? Well... Bill and I go way back, uh, Mike, 40 years. In my law career and his insurance uh, profession career, we intersected back in the late 70s and 80s when he came to London from Toronto. Always someone who was a gentleman, who was kind, uh, compassionate, knowledgeable, and always was someone you, you knew you could deal with honestly and openly, when Bill said something, you trusted it. You didn't need to write a memo to confirm it. Uh, it was done. And that spilled over when my children got involved in local sports and, and beyond. Bill was a passionate sports fan. So we would bump into uh, each other all the time at the London Knights games, or baseball games. And then when my girl started uh, figure skating, Bill was a huge uh, figure skating volunteer and fan, uh, got involved at the local board level and then the national board level. 
where he served uh, with distinction for decades. So uh, it was just a pleasure to know Bill, and it's just so sad that he's gone. We're talking with Jim Virtue about Bill Boland, who, as Jim says, was on the national board of Skate Canada for decades. And if you think of what it takes to run what you're doing in life, run what your kids are doing in life, run everything, and then think, yeah, to be able to serve and to bring big events and and to do it with that class, with that distinction. Jim, how about when Bill got an idea? It seemed, no matter what it was, that he was one of those people who was going to see it through until it actually took place. What do you remember about the world's coming to London? I remember having a private chat with Bill long before uh, it became a reality when Bill said, this is, this is what I think can happen, Jim. This is what we're working on. And I knew I could see it in his eyes. I could see the passion with which he spoke. You just knew he was going to make it happen. And when he and John Winston uh, got together. I remember his calling me to tell me, and I mean, he was almost in tears. He was so thrilled. And without Bill, it doesn't happen. But he made it happen, and it was such a wonderful event for London and for Southwestern Ontario, and, and indeed for everyone uh, involved in the world of skating in this area. And it's one of those events that came to this city and you would think, no, 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 that, that kind of an event, it wouldn't be able to come, it's, it's for bigger cities, you know, isn't that, don't you mean that's going to Toronto, don't you mean that's going to Vancouver, but this city yeah. hosted it amazingly, and Bill was right there, no matter what. Well, Jim, we really appreciate you taking some time to help us pay tribute to a real legend in this city. I'm, I'm a, it's my pleasure, Mike, and you know, there are, There are those among us who demand respect, and there are those who just simply by their presence command respect, and Bill fell gracefully into that latter category. Jim, please stay safe. Thanks so much for the time. You too, Mike. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. That's Jim Virtue. As we remember the life of Bill Boland and what he was able to do, and of course the 2013 World Figure Skating Championships, that was a pinnacle event, but... Bill was about grassroots. Bill was about every single step along the way. And it was great to see an event like that come. But this was someone who, on any given day, any given weekend, was in a rink, was supporting whatever it was, whether it was at the national level or the very, very local level. And that's just who he was. And look at that last line. You know what what Jim had just said? You know what we all need to strive to do? There are so many times in life when someone will think that they deserve respect and not take the time to earn it. And there's a real distinction there. You can't demand respect. You can command it. You can earn it. But you can't demand it. And Bill was somebody who, through the way he lived his life, taught everybody who knew him exactly that. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.